0: How many of you guys are glad that uh, regular, non rerun programming is back on TV? Amen. I am tired of summer programming. But uh, the reason I love uh, a few shows that I love is I love story. I love to laugh. I love to cry. I love just the drama of different things. And that is what we've really been exploring in this series that we've been in uh, entitled Once Upon a Time. Uh, seeing ourselves in the parables. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome uh, to this series. We're going to be looking at uh, a couple of very, very famous stories that Jesus told, maybe the most famous, the story of the, the lost sheep, the coin, and the lost sons. A.W. Tozer, he wrote a book about the attributes of God and who God is. And one of the questions he asked was this, or he threw out there, he said, this statement, what you think about... When you think about God, is the most important thing about a person. What you think about when you think about God, may be the most important thing about a person. That's deep. Okay. So I want you to do this. Close your eyes this morning. Okay. This is going to be a challenge for some of us. Close your eyes, everyone. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you when I say God? Are there images? Are there feelings? Are there there pictures? What comes to your mind when you think of God?
1: All right, open your eyes. We asked our parents this past week to ask their children, what comes to your mind when you think about God? And we got a lot of answers, um, most of them very heavy, Um, which surprised me, but it just shows what a great children's pastor we have at this church. We're (laughs) so blessed to have That's someone of that magnitude. Um, no, but we had a lot of Jesus, Savior, Creator. We had a lot of one word things, uh, but I'll just give you one today. One that was submitted was God, overall great dude. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, what do you guys think about when you think about God? Perhaps... It is a genie, oh, a sergeant, sorry. Perhaps it's a sergeant. Anybody recognize who that is? Was I around when Gomer Pyle was around? Because I don't remember Gomer Pyle. I was.
0: I'm trying to make myself younger
2: than I was. All right, when we think about God, do you think of a genie who can just grant you wishes? You just rub on the bottle and he pops out and grants you whatever wish you want. Do you think about the universe, Uh, uh, maybe a distant God who's not really involved in our day-to-day lives, who is the creator, but he's just not there? Or do you think about a God who is just a get-out-of-jail-free God? He, maybe you uh, think, well, I can just do something wrong, and I'll just ask forgiveness about it later, and I'll be able to, I'll get a pass, I'll get out of jail free. Or do you think of an a la carte God where you can just pick things that you like about God and put them all in one? Maybe like a buffet, when you go to a buffet and you're picking all the good things like chocolate, ice cream. That's what I would pick. <laughs>
0: Well, what if you pose this question to you? What if your view of God is inaccurate? Have you ever had a first impression of, about someone that was not true? Maybe you heard about, well, I heard this about them, or, you know, you got a bad impression because you saw something, or, or maybe a secondhand story, and, and before you even really got to know a person, you're like, that person's this, or that. I, just, I, I can never be close to them because of this. Or, and you just have these notions that are already there. I love working with teenagers. Uh, it's inevitable that there are, are friendships and there are rivalries. Oftentimes, this happens with guys, but also with girls, there are just these girls, before he, girls even meet each other sometimes there's this, this dividing lines and there's these looks of spite and pff, my mom would never even wear that outfit. I can't believe she's <laughs> wearing it at school and there are friends that are divided back and forth. And, and they haven't even spent time together Well, the great thing about being a youth pastor is you get to just break this world up and you force them to ride together in the same car on a road trip (laughs) and before the end of the road trip they are singing Beyonce together and they are sharing uh, life's secrets together and they have become the best of friends and they never knew that about each other and it's this beautiful moment Have you ever had an opinion shattered about someone? You're like, man, I just totally got that one wrong. Today, we want to look at three very familiar stories. In Luke chapter 15, you can start uh, turning there. Maybe we've missed some of the heart of God. And today, that's what we want to look at. Who this God is. What does his heart bleed for? What does his heart ache for? And what does his heart rejoice for?
2: There's an ancient story about a young man who came to a rabbi that he greatly admired. And he said, Rabbi, I love you, and I want to follow you. May I become your disciple? My son came the reply, Do you know what hurts me and what gives me pain? No, sir, I don't think I do, said the young boy. Well, then how can you say you love me if you don't know what brings me pain? Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 15, 1 through 3. Then all the tax collectors... And those sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying,
1: Do you sense the tension? They're gathered together, but there's definitely muttering going on. There's definitely this us and them feel. See, we've got these three groups. We've got these tax collectors which were basically these these Jewish employees of the Roman Empire, and it was their job to collect taxes on their own people. And then on top of that, they would price gouge their own people so that they could make a living. So you've got these tax collectors spending time with Jesus. I mean, what does that say about him? And then right alongside them, you've got these sinners. Now, in this passage, the word sinners is actually an adjective, and it's talking about somebody unwilling to go with God and do what God would want. So you've got these people that just have no regard for the traditions and the things of God, and then you've got these people who just turn their back and say, I don't care. I'm not going to do what God wants. And you've got these sinners. And right there alongside them, the Pharisees. You've got got these people who pride themselves in obeying the law and doing what is right and following the rules and we are God's chosen people. And I know that they hated the tax collectors because what they were doing was wrong. But I would imagine even more so the sinners. Can you just see them? They're standing there in their robes and they're saying, you know better. You could choose differently, and yet you choose to remain the same and not follow God. And it's into this setting with these three groups of people that Jesus
0: unfolds these three parables. So we have the hearers. Here's story number one, the lost sheep. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses One of you, one of them. First of all, the Pharisees are going, wait a second. (laughs) I'm no shepherd. Shepherds are unclean. Sheep are unclean. I would never, ever be a shepherd. Instead, Jesus, what maybe you should say is, what if you owned a hundred sheep and you sent your shepherd out to find the lost sheep? That's what they want to hear. But instead, Jesus puts them right in the story. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Here's the scene, 100 sheep, one is lost, we don't know where it is. Shepherds during that time in Middle Eastern time would say, you know, if you went to go look for one sheep. It would probably take you a day, maybe two, to find this sheep. And it wasn't an easy journey. It was over rocky country. It was over mountainous area. And when they found the sheep, most of them actually, secretively, would say, you know what, I kind of hope I find that sheep dead. And then I'll just grab some wool, maybe a bone that I can bring back to the the, the master and say, sorry, sheep was devoured by a lion, maybe something else, but... Because here's the hard part. Once that sheep is found, he's got to get back home. That day or two journey that got him there, got to get back home. Now, how does that happen? Maybe you've seen some pictures of this, where the shepherd takes the sheep and actually puts the stomach of the sheep on his neck, takes all four legs, ties up the legs around the front of the shepherd, and is able with the one hand to hold the sheep and one hand to maneuver around the rocky terrain. Kind of think that might be a good idea with my kids. Uh, <laughs> throw them over the shoulder, wrap them up. Maybe that will help. I have three now, so maybe need a little more help that way. But that's the picture of the shepherd. But when the shepherd in this story, in the story that you find today, what, he, what does he do? Does he upset that he finds the, the live sheep? No, he rejoices. He joyfully finds the sheep, and then he makes that journey home. And when he gets home, he gathers everyone around And maybe this would have even stirred in the community this communal idea, because a lot of times sheep were actually owned by a village. Maybe one house home would own one or two, and another home would own another two, and so the shepherd was kind of the shepherd over the whole village. So when he comes home and says, we found our lost sheep it was a community moment where everyone rejoiced because that was wool, that was, that was providing for the, not just the family, but the whole community, and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Do you know that you're valued by God? My very first job was, anyone guesses? McDonald's, that would be a good guess. Uh, my wife worked at McDonald's. Uh, I was a milkman. I was a milkman, yes. I applied at a grocery store called Winn-Dixie, yes. Uh, That is like the most Southern of the grocery stores, Uh, it's Winn-Dixie and then we have the Piggly Wiggly. Have you heard of the Piggly Wiggly before? Yes, the Piggly Wiggly is awesome. But I worked at Winn-Dixie, I was no bad guy, they saw potential in me and they just put me right to the milk stocking (laughs) guy, All right, So there I am, I worked there for about a year, junior to senior year of high school, I'm stocking milk and, you know, I'd have to take and block cheese and and I'd pull off things with bad expiration dates. I once found cheese that was two years out of date behind the thing. Check your labels, folks, check your labels. (laughs) I don't want to describe what that cheese looked like that was that far out of date, but pretty disturbing. Uh, But I had the coolest job and the most powerful job because I got to hold the pricing gun. The pricing gun. And I was so tempted. I I told everybody I was going to do this, but I chickened out. I was so tempted to change the price and to label things different prices, like my last day, or milk for 10 cents, everybody, come and get your milk. (laughs) Or to change it to higher prices and and different things along the way. The pricing gun is very valuable. It determines the value of different objects. And let me tell you this. A lot of times in our lives, we give the pricing gun of our lives and our value to other people.
1: Hmm.
0: We have handed it to others and say, you determine my value. You determine who I am. Let me tell you something, folks. You're better than that. You're more than that. You are valued. You are valued to God. You are the sheep that God would go after. And leave the 99. Psalms 139 says this, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit where I sit and when I rise and perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going and my lying down. You are familiar in all my ways. Before a word on my tongue, you know you know it completely. You hem me in. Behind and before me you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The Lord our God knows you and he values you and he loves you and he has left everything to seek after you. couple of things before we leave this story. A couple of just interesting notes you can throw this out there. Where does he leave the 99? In the open country in the wilderness. Interesting. You might want to just put that in the back of your mind. And he also says this, and this is an interesting statement as you think about the hearers of the story. There's more rejoicing over one repentant sinner than over 99 who don't need
2: Hmm.
0: to repent. Put that in the back of your mind as we go forward.
2: Let's talk about the, move on to the parable of the silver coin. says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Well, back then, they had dirt floors. My floor right now kind of looks like a dirt floor. It hasn't Mm -hmm. been swept in a long time or vacuumed. But they had dirt floors, and they had uh, only, uh, maybe if they had windows, they only it was only a small window, so it was very dark and very damp and very dusty in the houses. But she was on a mission to find this coin. So she lit a lamp, and she was sweeping the dust around, trying to find it. There's dust flying everywhere. She can't see, but she is diligently searching for this lost coin. She's not going to give up until she finds it. Now, the commentaries all say that the the coin was like about a day's wage. So she had 10 coins and she lost one, so she only had nine days of wages left. So maybe she was searching for the coin because she needed the money. I mean, it's a day's worth of wages. Um, But at the end, it says she threw a party and most likely the party that she would have thrown for her friends and neighbors would have cost her more than that day's wage of that silver coin was worth. So she ended up spending more money than that coin was worth. So the, the better answer is that it had sentimental value to her. Um, back in those days when this parable was written, Jewish women um, would wear the ten coins in their headdresses um, up above their forehead, and they would be given to them by their father at their wedding. And it, was, it signified her worth. It signified that she was um, a married, faithful woman, and it was all of her... Uh, who she was, was tied up um, in that coin, so she was uh, in need of finding that coin, and so whatever the reason was, whether it was a day's wage and she needed the money or whether it was sentimental value, uh, it's clear that it was of the utmost importance to her to find that coin.
1: Can I introduce you to someone?
0: Thank you. Yes, Pastor Garen.
1: That was the easy part of the sermon. (laughs) Um. Meet Snuggle Bunny,
2: Aww. Hi.
1: or as Emma calls her, Shruggle Bunny. Um, we've had, do we have a picture? Did they show it? Oh, oh wow. I knew I'd get the awe factor there. Um, <laughs> we've actually had Snuggle Bunny longer than we've had Emma. This was a gift that we got at one of our showers. And this was the doll, you know, they say when you have a baby, have some, a cloth or a, something and get the baby scent on it, take it home and let the dog smell it. And, I mean, this has been with Emma since day one. Um, just, just a regular doll, about $7. But to her, this is valuable. This Snuggle Bunny, the $7 piece of cloth is extremely valuable she never left emma's side she was she's been to disney world she's been to church she's been in the dirt playing around she's been everywhere well when emma was three um we lost snuggle bunny and i cannot tell you the trauma or the drama <laughs> that came upon our house that day um just a little context this is happened a week after we found out that Jen had thyroid cancer. And so we are already a wreck. We have a six-month-old, Henley, and we have a three-year-old, Emma, and Emma is the only one acting normally um, or giving us any kind of relief from the chaos until (laughs) Snuggle Bunny disappears. She was inconsolable. She cried nonstop. Where had Shruggly gone? Why would Shruggle Bunny leave me? Where is Shruggle Bunny? I need Shruggle Bunny. We turned the house upside down. We revisited restaurants. We called friends that we had been to lately. Have you seen Snuggle Bunny? Emma will not (laughs) sleep without (laughs) Snuggle Bunny. Have you ever been there? (laughs) Side note, the key is to buy two initially, and swapped them out so one never looks older than the other. That sounds like a Cosby show. (laughs) Just, Just a little parenting tip. But after a week of Emma being inconsolable, we were upstairs. I think it was Jen. She was cleaning up the loft, and she looked in one of those decorative boxes that people like to have all over their house, and there, wadded up, was Snuggle Bunny. Apparently, Emma told us later, oh yeah, she needed to take (laughs) a nap. And so I put her in a bedroom, her little box. But Jen found her. She called me and we just looked at each other and we were like, finally, a win. We need a win this week. And we called Emma up and she walks up the steps and we show her Snuggle Bunny. And I cannot explain the excitement, the joy, the utter relief the, the ecstatic feeling that Emma had. And so we actually, for about 10 minutes, literally danced around the loft. We, we all held hands and, and the four <laughs> of us danced around. That snuggle bunny had come home. We, um, I think we actually said that she went on vacation and had just gotten <laughs> back. So, cause Emma didn't understand that. But, <laughs> you know, it's a $7 toy, In the world's eyes, it is pretty insignificant. Not a lot of value. You can go to Toys R Us and buy 40 of them. But in Emma's eyes, and in the eyes of our family, Snuggle Bunny is invaluable. Snuggle Bunny is ours, and we missed her when she was gone.
0: Hmm. And that leads us to our, our finale. The final story, maybe the most known story. A story of of two lost sons. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The youngest one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now hearing these words would be a dagger into the heart of a father. No one would do this. In fact, they tell us that nowhere in Middle Eastern literature has ever a son come to a father and said, give me my share of the estate. Because basically what he's asking here is not for a loan. He's saying, as he looks into his eyes, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. So I can have what's mine. Can you imagine feeling and hearing those words as a father, as a parent? I wish you were dead. Maybe you have heard those words before. So he divided his property up between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. So a son, the younger son at this time, would get a third of the estate. They didn't divide it up in half back then. They gave two-thirds to the older son, one-third to the younger son. They would take land. They would take everything. And basically what the son did was he liquidated the land. He sold the land, which to the father was identity, was security, was his future. The community knew about it. He liquidated that land, took all of it in cash, and said, You know what? I'm going off and I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't ever want to come back again. And a father, in that moment, he basically, I'm sure, tried to, to, t- to talk his son out of it, but eventually relents, gives in. And I can see this father. As he, with tears flowing down his eyes, as he sees his son's silhouette begin to disappear into the horizon, man, that's difficult stuff. There is a movie that's out now, and, and I got to be honest with you, I'm not. will refuse to see it. It's called Prisoners, I think. And eventually, I mean, the, the if you've seen anything about it, I can just tell by the uh, by the trailer, the movie is about kids being kidnapped. A, a father in a, is a position where his his daughter is taken. I cannot imagine the pain of that situation. I I won't see the movie for that very reason. I don't want to put myself in that position. I don't want to feel that pain. I don't want to feel that hurt. And the movie is about the the lengths that a father would go to, to get his little girl back. Knives and hearts as he sees his son going across the horizon.
2: When Philip was about four, uh, I took he and Ashley. She was a newborn to the mall. I was pushing her in a stroller, and I had all the things that you have with newborns—bags and purse and whatever. And Philip was following behind me, and he was playing on his Game Boy. I think that's what they were called back then. And um, I, I just was assuming that he was following me, and we were walking down the the hallway. And I decided to turn into a store. And about the time that I turned into the store, Megan sorry, Ashley started screaming bloody murder and I'm digging through the bags, I've got everything on the floor and I'm digging through, I'm trying to find a pacifier. I don't know how long it took me to do that and to get her quieted and I turned around to say something to Philip, and he was gone. He wasn't there and I thought, well maybe he's just under the clothes racks because he used to like to hide under the racks and scare me to death and, but he wasn't there. I was screaming his name, the lady that worked there was looking in the dressing rooms for me thinking maybe he crawled under one uh, but he was nowhere in the store. So I just left everything there, all of the the bags, my purse, everything and I take Ashley in the stroller and I am running down the mall trying to find him and he is gone. He is nowhere to be found and I am screaming, Philip, Philip and I am running. I mean I'm sure I look like an idiot and I am just screaming his name. Other people start trying to help me find him. I'm at Sears, which is one end of the mall. I go all the way down to the other, and I'm just screaming, asking anybody if he's seen him. Nobody's seen him. I'm thinking the worst. I'm thinking somebody took him. He's going to be tortured. I mean, he's scared, you know. And I get down there, and I see the security guard coming out of a store with him. And just this relief just flooded over me. And I just grabbed him, and I hugged him. And I'm like, don't you ever do that again. Don't ever leave me. And he's like, don't you ever leave me. And we're just... Both sat there and cried together. And it was just a really, really sense of relief and a joyous moment when I found him.
1: Can you put, you put yourself in this story? We've got this father and this son that's decided, I would rather live without you. I'm going to take the cash and run. And every day, the father wakes up Hopeful that today will be the day that my son comes home. And every evening, a little more heartbroken, going into the house, realizing today wasn't the day, but maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow my son will come home. And day after day, night after night, this aching in a father's heart, For the son that he loved so desperately to return to him. And then one day he's standing. I mean, this is how I picture it. He's on the front porch. You can see in his eyes. He's worn down. He's weary. He's got a little bit of sparkle because he still has hope. But you can tell that his heart has been broken every day his son has been gone. He is aching. And all of a sudden, scanning the horizon, he sees the approaching. Has no idea, it's too far, can't tell. But as he starts to watch this stranger approach, he starts to notice things. He starts to think, you know, I mean, he's a little skinnier than my son was, but I mean, he's the same build. And the boy keeps walking. I mean, he slouched over, you can tell he's had a rough life, but I mean, if he were standing up, he'd be about the height of my son, and joy, hope starts to well up, and, and before he can even recognize the facial features, he knows who it is, mm-hmm. he knows exactly who it is, he can tell by his son's gait, he can tell that this is his son, the son that morning after morning he had hoped for, the son that night after night he had ached over, his son has returned. And what does he do? He hikes up his robe and he beelines it straight for this son that's coming toward him. I mean, can you see it? This is unheard of. A father would not do that. A community People living around would be watching this happen and they'd wonder, what's the father going to do? Is he going to disown him? Is he... What's going to play out here? And they're shocked when he raises up his garment and he bolts for this son that's finally come home. Now we live in a day and age when many of our views of our heavenly father have been skewed by issues with our Earthly fathers. And there may be some of you that sit here today and say, I don't even know that my dad would do that for me, my physical dad. Why would my heavenly dad do that? Some of you have had relationships with your dad that are much worse, much less than ideal. But I'm here to tell you, That is not an accurate view of our Heavenly Father. The God we love and serve is the Father that is willing to do whatever it takes. In that day, a Middle Eastern man would never raise his garment, would never run. This just wasn't heard of. And yet, the Father is willing to do whatever. Who cares about traditions? Who cares about what society says? Who cares about what people say or think? My son has come home and I love him so completely, I can't spend another second away from him. Hmm. This is the kind of father that we serve and love. This is the kind of father whose heart goes from distraught and aching to paramount joy to rejoicing, to excitement. He's overwhelmed hmm. when his son comes back home.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Did you notice that uh, in the three stories, in the first two, uh, someone goes out and looks for what is lost? I mean, they are searching diligently. They're, they're going to find it no matter what. Uh, but in the third story, nobody goes out and looks for what is lost. Hmm. Well, I was curious as to why nobody went out And looked for the lost son so I looked a few things up and um, it the Bible the commentaries parallel it to the story of Cain and Abel Um, I'm sure you know the story Cain killed his brother because he was jealous and angry um, over Abel and he killed him and after he killed him um, God said Cain where's your brother and he said I don't know am I my brother's keeper and God is essentially saying yes you are you are your brother's keeper Uh, There are lonely people um, all around us. Are we keeping our brother the way we're supposed to? There are hurt people all around us. Are we reaching out to the hurt people? There are lost people all around us. Are we reaching out to the lost? Do you know who your brother is?
0: In November of 1964, first lieutenants, Dan Dawson, his bird dog plane went down in the jungles of Vietnam, right in the middle of the war. And the body wasn't found, the plane wasn't found, word got back to California, and his brother Donald heard of the, of the tragic accident and that they couldn't find the plane. And so what does Donald do? He sells basically everything. The story I read in time said that he, he basically left his wife and his three kids with 20 bucks And went to Vietnam in search of his brother. And he went, not with special training, not with guns. He went with a German shepherd and an interpreter. And went through the jungles of Vietnam, just north of Saigon, looking for his brother. In fact, it it was said that he wasn't even touched. Because everyone began to learn of his stories on both sides of the war. And he was just known to everyone as the brother. And he searched, and he searched through battlefields, through jungles for this brother. It would be suggested that that was the job of the older brother, to go out when he heard that his, his brother was lost and to find him, to bring him back home in the story. But that's not what the older brother does. In fact, it would seem to be the opposite. I wonder if he even heard that of the tales of, of what's happened in the other country. That the younger brother has wasted the money on prostitutes and wild living. And I wonder if there was a moment where he said this, well, he's getting what he deserves. Have you ever said that before about someone? I know I have, where they're getting what they deserved. They reap what they sow and they're getting that now, and good luck. He wasn't going to search for a brother. No, 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 no. He gets what he deserves. So what happens? Suddenly he comes in from the field and he hears music. And he hears dancing in the house. And a fellow servant comes up and says, basically tells him what's happened. Your younger brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf. And there is a celebration. There is a party. Come on in. Does he come in? No. No, no, no. He's steaming. He is so mad. He's outside of the party. In fact, outside of the party, the father comes back out, and he tries to beg the son, come in. We're having a party. And what's the response? Look, you. You never even gave me a, a sick goat. And you killed a fattened calf for him? For him?
1: Do you hear the language? Do you hear the anger? I mean... All these years, he'd been there. All these years, he he said it like this, all these years I have slaved for you. Isn't that interesting? How he uses that kind of language to his father who has given him everything. And yet, when your son returns, and all of a sudden we start to think, wow, Kind of sounds like the beginning, doesn't it? With the Pharisees. I mean, I stayed here. I did what you wanted. I served you. I did the right things. And this son of yours could have, but chose not to. And at the beginning, we have the Pharisees saying the same thing about the tax collectors and sinners. And if the truth be told... We do the same thing, don't we? Too many times we find it very easy to decide who's right, who's wrong, who's really living for God, and who's not. Who's who's got an amazing salvation story and who's never gonna get it. They're just beyond hope. And we're like, well, we find ourselves in part of the story that we don't Really like. Because the truth is, both sons were lost. One went to a different country, one just went to the other room. But they both missed the heartbeat of the father. Neither one of them truly understood what breaks the father's heart and what makes the father rejoice. Two sons were lost, not one. It's just that only one realized it.
2: Hmm. Gary Enrig wrote, The evidence that we know God is not so much our ability to to define the divine attributes as it is our response to people. Right knowledge of God is present when we imitate our father's response. In other words, it's one thing to know what you're supposed to do, but it's quite another to do it. We hear about starving children on TV. We see the commercials. Uh, We hear about World Vision and other places like that when we go to Christian concerts. We um, even hear about it in churches. Um, Sometimes even we advertise for the Nazarene Compassion Ministries, but do we put action behind um, knowing, behind our knowledge? You see, mercy is when... Mercy is action, working action, when you actually put action behind the need.
1: See, here's the thing I love about these stories, and this is where I've made the mistake so many times. I thought it was about the lost sheep, Mm -hmm. the lost coin, and the lost son, but in reality, Those are the objects of the story. They are not the subject. The subject is this father. The subject is this God who, like a shepherd, does whatever it takes, is willing to leave everything to find this lost sheep. This God that we love is like this woman who finds so much significance in us that she will do whatever it takes. God will do whatever it takes to find us, to redeem us. God is like this father who is willing to let traditions and rituals and what other people say, none of that matters. The only thing that matters to this father is the lost coming home. Mm. That's what makes this father rejoice.
2: Mm. God also rejoices when we are in right relationship with him when we let him advance his kingdom through us, when we love others the way that he loves us, when we pray and read our Bibles and grow closer to him, when we seek to know what breaks the Father's heart, and when we come home.
0: Hmm. As Pastor Garen said, these, point, these, these stories are not about a coin, a sheep, or sons. It's about a father and his heart. And how well we know God's heart is revealed and how we rejoice. And if we rejoice with what he rejoices in, and if we ache for what his heart aches for, can I tell you, I want to be a part of a community of believers that rejoice when the lost are found, when the mm. lost come home. And I don't mean just, Oh, that was awesome. That was a a neat little service. I mean, rejoicing when we see someone saved, Mm -hmm. when we see someone come to know the Lord for the first time, when stories would just buzz around about, you'll never guess what happened. I was in a Starbucks and suddenly I had a conversation with someone and you're not going to believe what happened next. We prayed right there in Starbucks. and, And this woman she might come to church on Sunday and it was a beautiful time where she gave her life to the Lord and the story would get around on Facebook and conversations and suddenly, not just a few of us, but all of us would want and desire to hear those stories and we would rejoice and we would, our hearts would break when we hear the opposite and we would lift each other up and we would pray for those. That's what God has called us to be. This... Uh, This morning, the table is set. There's a party going on. We heard at the very beginning of this story, we heard who the audience was. We have Pharisees, we have sinners, we have people that have been living right all of their life, have been doing good things all of their life. We have those who have chosen the opposite, the lost. We have sinners, that's who's hearing these stories. And now we find ourselves at the end of the story. And the end of the story is the celebration. There's a party going on inside of the house. There was a son that was lost, a father who was aching, and this son has come home and and the father is celebrating. He has given the best, he has given the ring, he has put the shoes on, he has placed the robe on of a celebration. And this celebration is for those who are lost. And then there's a son who is sitting outside of the party. And he is upset. And he has a decision to make. Do I go inside? Do I go to the table? Do I rejoice? Two lost sons. Both can be found. This table is a table of grace We heard about the job of the older son earlier, the one that should go out and search for the younger. Today we have good news, folks. We have an older brother, one that came down thousands of years ago, and he came seeking to save which was lost. And he gave his life so that we can be found, that we can be forgiven, that we today... Can celebrate grace. We can be a part of the party. It doesn't matter what your story is. I don't care if you've grown up in the church all your life. If every Sunday morning, night, Wednesday, wherever, and you've done all the good things and you've checked all the, the marks, the table is for you, folks. Come in. Let's rejoice when the Father rejoices. Let's ache when He aches. Or maybe you are feeling lost this morning. Maybe you're feeling far away from the Father. And maybe you've made decisions and you've taken steps away and you're at that point of realizing your need for Him. Can I just share we've all been there before. We've all been that place when we realize, God, I don't want just the Father's riches. I want His presence. Mm. I need God. I need Him. We all need Him. Today, the table is for you as well. This morning, we're going to take communion in a way um,
1: maybe unlike you ever have. Um, I know I haven't done it this way. But what better way to talk about this Father that invites us into this celebration than to come to a banquet table and to celebrate. And so I want to give you a couple of instructions. First of all, chaos is not the enemy. (laughs) We don't have to come down single file. That's not how you would come to a party. You would just come and you would be there and maybe you would have to wait and maybe you wouldn't, but that's okay. The point is that everyone is invited to this table. All the lost are welcome at the banquet. Come. Come in. Come to the banquet. And when you come, we don't go to a banquet banquet with a somber mood. We go with excitement. We go with joy. We go rejoicing because we were that son. And we've made the choice to come into the banquet. So come with excitement. The music's going to be a little bit more lively than before because at a banquet, music would be lively. I hope that on the way up, you'll be greeting each other and celebrating as you come up to take this table to which we all belong. Come to the table.
0: The night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, that was broken for you. He took a cup, and I wonder, as he lifted it up to the light, he thought about what was to come. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you and for your sins. This morning, in the church of the Nazarene, we believe in an open table. You're welcome to come. All you have to be is a, a one that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in this grace. You are welcome. If you are in need of gluten-free, we have it over here as well. And uh, we want to rejoice this morning. Also, if you're someone that you can't come up to the table today, we want to bring the table to you. Just get our attention and and we'll do that. The candles have been lit. The table is set. The music is beginning to play. Let's celebrate this morning. Come as you feel led. If you want to pray, if you need to pray, pray table is here, let's celebrate our Lord.